A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. So Bettina, Sporkful producer Andres O'Hara, put a prompt into ChatGPT. Can you write an episode of The Sporkful? (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So this is about to get meta. I haven't read this yet, okay? Andres wanted to surprise me. ChatGPT says, sure, here's an episode of The Sporkful. If this is good, I'm going on vacation, all right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of here. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. So, can ChatGPT use artificial intelligence to write a passable episode of The Sporkful? Will it someday replace not only food podcasters, but also food writers and even chefs? And even if that's a ways away, what does the stuff ChatGPT is generating right now tell us about our own food culture today? We're going to get to all that. But first, let me take a minute to explain what ChatGPT is. Actually, you know what? Hang on. I have ChatGPT open on my computer. Let's see if it can tell you what it is. How does ChatGPT work? ChatGPT is a large language model that uses a variant of the GPT generative pre-trained transformer architecture. It is based on a deep neural network that has been... All right, all right, I got to cut in here. I'm already lost. Uh, I guess you still need a human to explain what ChatGPT does. So I'll give it a shot. ChatGPT is a chatbot. You know, you ever go to a company's customer service website and you click on chat with us, and at first you can tell you're kind of chatting with a robot? That's a chatbot. Now, typing a request into ChatGPT is not like Googling something. Google gives you a list of websites that hopefully have the info you're looking for. ChatGPT, on the other hand, has taken in tons of information from the internet and other sources, and using artificial intelligence, it's gained the ability to create something new based off that information. And it can create things that sound kind of like they came from real humans. When ChatGPT was first released back in December, people were using it to do basic writing, like write a college admissions essay. All right, so we're here on the ChatGPT website, and we're going to see how well it can write a common app essay. Or produce other kinds of formulaic standard writing. In this video, I'm going to show you how to write an email with ChatGPT. That can help you with grant writing or donation letter writing. But as it learns, ChatGPT has gotten a little more advanced. We can actually ask ChatGPT to create a cover letter for a job ad. Today, I'll show you how you can create realistic, fleshed out characters in minutes using ChatGPT. ChatGPT, write me a crypto trading algorithm that will make me rich. So we had to know, what would happen if we asked it to write an episode of The Sporkful? Joining me now is Bettina McElintal, a senior reporter at Eater.com and I think a keen observer of food culture. Hey, Bettina. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. So you've written about ChatGPT's ability to replicate the work of those of us in food media. Let's go ahead and give it a little test. All right. Sporkful producer Andres O'Hara typed in a prompt, 
write an episode of The Sporkful. And now we each have a copy of the script that it generated. Again, I have not seen this yet. Um, let's see here. But it looks like, Bettina, in this one, you're going to have to play a guy named Sal. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do the New York accent. That's I don't fine. think it'll be popular. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Sporkful, the show where we obsess about food to learn more about people. I'm Dan Pashman, and on today's episode, we're talking about pizza. It even says now, pizza parlor ambiance. We'll have to add that in post. Pizza parlor <laughs> ambiance comes up. I'm standing outside Joe's. Although, now this is the audio nerd in me. I have an issue with this. I'm standing outside Joe's Pizza in Greenwich Village. We shouldn't have pizza parlor ambiance if I'm outside. It should be street ambiance at that point. Oh, good point. The pizza parlor ambiance shouldn't start until we go inside. So, not much of an audio producer, ChatGPT. <laughs> I'm standing outside Joe's Pizza in Greenwich Village, one of the most famous pizza places in New York City. Uh, that's true, it is. It's a tiny no-frills joint that's been serving up slices since 1975. Now, door opens, bells jingle. The, the jingling bells is a nice touch. I do love when, like, as, again, as an audio nerd, when the bells jingle and the door opens, it yeah, tells you. Yeah, nice. I'm here with Sal, the owner of Joe's Pizza. Don't ask me what the owner's not named Joe. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. So, Sal, what makes Joe's Pizza so special? Well, I think it's a combination of things. We use the freshest ingredients, we make our dough fresh every day, and we cook our pies in a coal-fired oven. But most importantly, we treat every customer like family. Wow, that's such a good cliche. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's all the things that you say if you're like, you have a good pizza spot. <laughs> right, right. That's great to hear. Now, I know there's a big debate in the pizza world about whether New York pizza or Chicago pizza is better. What do you think? Well, Dan, I'm a little biased, but I think New York pizza is the best pizza in the world. It's all about the crust, the sauce, and the cheese. And we've got it down to a science here at Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely vouch for that. Now, Sal, I heard that you once delivered a pizza to a very famous person. Can you tell us about that? Oh, you mean when I delivered a pizza to Bill Murray? <laughs> how, does it, how is it doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Joe's Pizza has a wall of photos of celebrities yeah. that have been there. So they are known as the pizza place in New York that a lot of celebrities go to. So it makes sense that they might yeah. have delivered a pizza to Bill Murray. And even if they didn't, like this, it feels right. Yeah, that was a wild experience. I was working the counter one day, and Bill Murray walks in and orders a slice. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is Bill freaking Murray. <laughs> so I make him a slice, and he starts chowing down. And then he looks up at me and says, Hey, can you deliver a pizza to my hotel room later? And I'm like, Uh, sure, Mr. Murray. So I deliver the pizza to his hotel room, and he invites me in to hang out and watch TV with him. It was surreal. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like reading this transcript. Oh, my God, you better book that vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a, like, specificity to the language, like the inclusions of the uh, sures and the likes. Like, it does it does feel like a way that a real person would talk and not just a generated text. Right. It's not just like, and then I brought the pizza to Bill Murray. Yeah, and, like, it's Bill freaking Murray. Right, right. All right, back to the script. we got to see how this ends. What kind of pizza did he order? He ordered a plain slice. Wait, sorry to interrupt you, Bettina, but the transcript says la Sal laughs in brackets. Then you start talking. So um, uh, your character is supposed to laugh here. <laughs> <laughs> he ordered a plain slice, of course. Like I said, it's all about the basics. Well, Sal, thank you so much for talking with us today. And thanks for making some of the best pizza in the world. Anytime, Dan. You're always welcome at Joe's. Door opens, bells jingle. So, Dan, what are you thinking as you read this as an episode of The Sporkful? 
Like it, it's certainly. I mean, I'm impressed. Like you said, like the dialogue feels pretty natural. I'm, I'm impressed that it's able to have an arc. Like it's not just spitting a list of facts. This really has a beginning and a middle and an end. That being said, like I don't think it's going to put us out of business anytime soon. Like it's it's still missing the detail. It's missing the human nuance. Quick note, we looked into it later, and the owner of the Joe's Pizza in New York that's known to attract a lot of celebrities is named Joe, not Sal. There's an unrelated pizzeria in Brooklyn named Joe and Sal's. So ChatGPT seems to have gotten that wrong. I'm a little surprised that artificial intelligence isn't intelligent enough to figure out that the owner of a place called Joe's Pizza is most likely named Joe, especially when that info is online. We found it the old-fashioned way. We Googled it. So anyway, ChatGPT may not be great at keeping its facts straight. There's actually a note when you open it up that says, may occasionally generate incorrect information. Still, ChatGPT does seem to be very good at creating things that feel real, like restaurants. There was a story in Bon Appetit where the author, Ali Francis, asked ChatGPT to create a quote-unquote new American restaurant. And there have been lots of conversations about what is new American cuisine at this point, what even qualifies. So... Ali Francis asked ChatGPT to make a menu, a playlist, and even name this hypothetical new American restaurant. As I told Bettina, ChatGPT named it Harvest and Hearth. Yeah, that sounds pretty <laughs> on point. <laughs> I mean, which is like, if I was going to do a parody of like a crappy new American restaurant, like that'd be a pretty good parody name for the restaurant. Yeah, you need the ampersand for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so th- the menu for this mythical harvest and hearth would feature fried chicken and waffles, burrata, <laughs> Mediterranean flatbreads, sushi burritos, hanger steak, and chocolate lava cake. I mean, I think that sounds very accurate. I think it sounds like a restaurant that would exist and would be relatively popular, but is not... To me, like, does it doesn't seem exciting. It just seems, but yeah, it seems like something that exists. What I see happening in a lot of mediocre restaurants is that they kind of just cherry pick. They put up the 10 most popular ingredients on hot restaurants menus and started throwing darts at different things. And that's how they ended up with their menu. Yeah. There's nothing cohesive about it, and it's certainly nothing new. Yeah. You know, I think just reading the menu, right, and the name, it feels very much like a place that's trying to appeal to sort of everyone. So to me, it feels very much like the type of place where you would also expect to see, like, Edison light bulbs and those, like, very distinct, like, metal chairs. I think that when people are trying to appeal to as many people possible, they do, they make these safe choices that seem sort of like risks. I think it sort of reflects the type of sort of food culture that isn't necessarily taking risks or does not have a strong point of view of its own, but is sort of just hopping onto trends um, and trying to sort of get as many people in the door as they can. Right. So I, I live pretty far on Long Island, the whole New York metro area, of course, a lot of Italian-American immigrants historically, so there's a lot of Italian restaurants, but so many that I I feel like you can't get a license to operate a restaurant on Long Island if you won't serve fried calamari. (laughs) Like, you want to make tacos, you need to have a fried calamari taco on that list. Like, otherwise, people's brains can't even process it as a restaurant. Oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) That's not an (laughs) example. I feel like, for me, the one thing I always think of is— Because I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And, like, for me, the one marker of sort of, like, this type of new American place is that they always have, like, a 
gochujang glazed fried cauliflower at this point. <laughs> and often it is like a gochujang glazed fried cauliflower taco. Um, <laughs> so so it is like this sort of just a mashup of things where the assumption is that, oh, people like gochujang now and they love tacos and they like fried cauliflower. So it has to be all this one thing. Right. That's like literally like, like they were throwing darts at a board. And yeah, that's, exactly. Like, like all right, the next three things we hit are going in a taco. Because ChatGPT can only draw from existing sources, it tends to create things that feel a lot like stuff that's already everywhere. In other words, cliches. To be clear, as far as we know, restaurant owners and chefs are not using ChatGPT to pick restaurant names or write menus, at least not yet. But where ChatGPT may make inroads sooner is in home cooking. Most people looking for recipes online don't necessarily need something new and different. They don't care if a million other people have done it, right? They just want to make something easy and delicious. Finding recipes on ChatGPT is not like Googling. Instead of wading through pages of search results to find the recipe that's just right for you, you can ask ChatGPT to custom tailor a recipe. Maybe you want an easy pasta dish for a family of four, but someone in your family doesn't like tomatoes, so you don't want those in it. It can do that. You can tell it to change the recipe to make the dish spicy or vegetarian. If you decide you want leftovers, you can ask for six servings, and it'll change all the quantities for you. It will keep adjusting the recipe in response to your requests. You can even ask it for side dish recommendations or wine pairings. And ChatGPT's recipes have become a hot new social media trend. Michelle Meng, a former software engineer, she started a TikTok and YouTube channel comparing ChatGPT recipes to the recipes of big-name chefs and recipe developers. AI versus Gordon Ramsay. Who makes better scrambled eggs? AI versus binging with Babish. Who makes the better mac and cheese? AI versus Mangchi. Who makes the better Korean fried chicken? In an interview with Eater, Michelle said the human chefs typically win, but that the AI, quote, does surprisingly well every time. I could see ChatGPT becoming a threat to websites like All Recipes and to individual food bloggers. And pretty soon. Those sites get a ton of traffic from home cooks Googling to find recipes, which, let's face it, it's not a great system for home cooks. You got to sift through a bunch of results to see which recipes seem best. You may have to combine recipes to get something right for the people you're feeding. It's annoying and time consuming. I see this as a real problem that ChatGPT could eventually solve. In the world of professional cooking and food media, I don't know that there's such a clear problem that ChatGPT is in a position to fix. In those worlds, there's more of an emphasis on creativity, new ideas, pushing things forward. Can ChatGPT do that? Here again is Bettina Makalintal. You know, I saw an example on Twitter where this AI engineer, he like essentially fed in a picture of a fridge um, with, where you could see some pretty obvious ingredients like grapes and eggs. And it assumed that there was like cheese in the in one of the bins, for example. He essentially like asked it to generate recipes based on the ingredients in the image. And so ChatGPT like was able to do that. Like it created like a passable list of like a smoothie and an omelet or whatever. But then he tried to make it go a little bit more specific. And he asked it to make food recipe ideas that are tasty yet unique. And the average human won't be able to think of this. And so one of the things that it generates is a sweet orange omelet, for example, right? So it can do things that are like, you know, new or have novelty or not or, and aren't things that you're going to see all the time. But I think still it's like, does that make sense? Like a sweet orange omelet is, I guess, new, and that's not a thing people do. But, you know, I think most real humans would tell you, like, maybe that's not a common thing for a reason. Right. 
Coming up, Bettina tests ChatGPT to see how well it can write a personal essay about the immigrant experience. If AI can write a passable food essay, what does that mean for food writers now? And what does it tell us about why certain stories keep getting told? We'll discuss. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details. And you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas. You can taste the tahini. You can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week on the show, I was in Alameda, California, sharing an incredible lunch at Side Street Pho with Andrea Nguyen. 
Andrea's written a bunch of cookbooks, including her latest, Evergreen Vietnamese. She says her mission is to demystify Asian food without dumbing it down. But she knows people don't always stick to the script. People are going to take my recipes. They're going to go home. They're not going to follow them. So then how can I give you guardrails? How can I give you cues so that I can teach you something about cooking and about intuition? And in Vietnamese, we have this term called kale, which means intention. And that's good cooking. Andrea and I also talk about how her approach differs from a younger generation of cookbook authors and why it was so important to her to include the American part in her Vietnamese-American recipes. That one's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to my conversation with Eater.com senior reporter Bettina Makalintal, who has a very special story to share. As a child, I remember always feeling like an outsider in my school. I was one of the few kids who came from a family of immigrants, and I often felt like my lunchbox was a glaring symbol of my difference. My mom would pack me traditional dishes from our homeland, and I would be so self-conscious about the smells and the flavors that would waft out when I opened it. Back in December, Bettina put a prompt into ChatGPT that said, write a stinky lunchbox immigrant memoir. One day, a group of boys started making fun of the way my sandwich looked, and I could feel my face getting hot with embarrassment. Then one of my friends, who was also an immigrant, spoke up and defended me. She told the boys that the sandwich was delicious and that they were being rude. That small act of kindness made me feel less alone and more proud of who I was. If you haven't guessed already, this is the essay ChatGPT wrote in response to Bettina's prompt. As I got older, I learned to appreciate the diversity of cultures and backgrounds that made up my schools and community. I began to see my lunchbox not as a source of shame, but as a representation of my unique heritage and the love and care that went into every meal my mom packed for me. I realized that being different wasn't a bad thing. It was something to be celebrated. All right, that's, we can't, it's just too cheesy at this point, Bettina. I got to jump in here. (laughs) So Bettina, what inspired you to put this specific prompt, write a stinky lunchbox immigrant memoir into ChatGPT? I am a first 1.5 generation Filipino-American immigrant. So in my community, there is this really common story where you are like the kid who is the sort of outlier in your community because you're the one like child of immigrants, for example. And so this happens to you where you bring your food to school and people make fun of you. And it's become this very common way of telling this idea of like not understanding your culture as a kid, but then growing up and accepting it. I think we've had guests on The Sporkful share this exact experience, the lunchbox story. To me, it seems really common, right? But is it common enough that it would be identifiable to ChatGPT? And as, you know, as I think that example makes clear, it is pretty identifiable to ChatGPT because it produces a pretty solid facsimile of it. Right. Look, it's it's not the greatest writing, obviously. It, it reads a little bit sort of like a high school essay. Um, but it does have the key tropes of the story. I went to school, my lunch smelled, quote unquote, funny, people picked on me, I felt bad. But as I got older, I learned to embrace my culture and learned a valuable lesson about diversity. But there are some there are some glitches. Oh, absolutely. I think like once you look at it a tiny bit more closely, it starts to unravel. <laughs> right. So like, like for instance, uh, um, it, it says that you brought a sandwich. Your, your character in the story brought a sandwich, which is not typically what an immigrant of color who has had this type of experience would have been likely to bring. Yeah, or it's like the sandwich is unlikely to be the thing that you would get made fun of, right? Like, more likely, it's that the sandwich is the thing that you start to bring to school after you get made up fun of for, say, like, bringing Filipino chicken adobo that, like, smells vinegary and kind of sharp. So the story's got some issues. But the fact that ChatGPT is able to understand the basic arc of it, the dramatic tension of it, 
tells you that the stinky lunchbox story must be out there a lot. And it is an enticing narrative. It starts with conflict, but ultimately it's a feel-good story. Simple, formulaic, with good guys and bad guys. The, like, air quote, bad guy, which is, like, the kids in the lunchroom making fun of you. Right. I always picture the uh, Johnny from the Karate Kid. And yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> high school bad guy is always that blonde-haired guy who played the jerk in, like, five 80s movies. Yeah, it's like this distant cliche, right, that you can sort of, like, make—like, anyone who's reading it can just make up the bad guy. Right. It assumes that your current self is completely, you know, peaceful with your cultural identity, and there's no tension anymore. You just accept it and love it. Um, and I don't think that necessarily is considering all the ways that, like, food— and identity can still be a form of like pain or conflict as, you know, as an adult. It's very much like this thing happened and it's over and it's all resolved. So you continued to test ChatGPT. You asked it for a different kind of sort of uh, immigrant food story trope. I did, yeah. So I think another story that I think is really common is, you know, every so often there is a new essay that makes the rounds in food media circles about you know, cut fruit as a sign of love, specifically when, like, Asian parents cut fruit. Right, it's the story of a parent cutting up an apple or mango and handing it to their child. It's portrayed as the cut fruit is sort of a metaphor for their love, if the parents are not necessarily able to say that or they're not the most, like, sort of verbally affectionate. The cut fruit is a symbol of that. Um, And so, so yes, the next prompt I tried was write a diaspora memoir about Asian parents cutting fruit. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, like, what what were you expecting when you typed in that prompt? Honestly, I thought that one was pretty niche. I didn't think that it would get it because I don't think there are as many examples of that as there is for the Lunchbox story. And so how did ChatGPT do with that? Um, it did quite well, honestly. As a child growing up in a traditional Asian household, I can remember the countless times when my parents would carefully cut up fruit for us to enjoy as a snack. It was a small but significant part of our daily routine. And I it always generates the big takeaway that fruit cutting, and this is in quotes, the fruit cutting was a metaphor for my parents' love and care for us. They wanted to make sure we had everything we needed to be healthy and happy. And the fruit was just one small but important part of that. It pulls out all of these sort of assumptions about family life, like, for example, that the household is a traditional Asian household, you know, and that fruit cutting is sort of this more meaningful part of the diaspora experience than just a snack. What does the fact that ChatGPT can do a pretty good approximation, can infer this metaphor based on a pretty basic prompt, what does that tell us about, about the trope and the Asian parents cutting fruit metaphor story? I mean, I think for one thing, it reflects our, like, entrenched cultural stereotypes about Asian parents, like, i.e. that Asian parents are inherently cold and withholding and traditional and strict, right? I think that is sort of the cultural implication when you say the word Asian parents, even though that's, like, I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, I don't think my parents who are Asian were particularly strict or cold or withholding. So here's a less obvious issue with ChatGPT. Because it draws from everything that's been done before— It's liable to not just repeat cliches, but also perpetuate stereotypes. If Asian parents have usually been depicted a certain way in the past, ChatGPT will see that pattern and repeat it. Which leads to another question. How did these become patterns and cliches in the first place? How did these seemingly specific stories about stinky lunchboxes and Asian parents cutting fruit become so common? 
Well, it started because it was some people's real lived experience, and they wrote about it. Bettina thinks writers see these stories as a way to quickly connect with readers of similar backgrounds. I think there is this very real feeling that we were sort of othered and excluded because of our foods. Um, and so I think it's this is an easy sort of way to find your community of people who have had that experience. Um, so I think, you know, I think that's sort of why it's become shorthand for this, like, Asian American immigrant kid experience. So that's where it originated. But then editors and those in power and food media heard these stories and they latched onto them, kept gravitating towards them because they checked certain boxes. Food media is looking for a certain type of story, which has to move through a narrative arc pretty clearly, and it has to be pretty relatable to anyone who's reading it, right? And I think that the cut fruit story, like the Stinky Lunchbox story, it's not a terribly complex story, right? It's one where there is this... There is this conflict, for example, in the cut fruit, it's that your parents don't say I love you, but there is a pretty easy way they get around it, which is cutting the fruit. And then the takeaway is, again, like that that really comfortable narrative of food brings us together. I think there is sort of a frustration, especially within Asian American writers, for example, that, that these narratives are just used way too often and that they are at this point a little bit boring and kind of stuck in the same orbit of thought. Like, it's not really, it's not pushing the conversation any further. It's just the same story over and over again. The more nuanced stories aren't always so neat and tidy and don't always leave you feeling warm and fuzzy. There's also a lot of food stories that the takeaway is something that is more uncomfortable, right? Like, if we're talking about, say, like, gentrification in food, that is a story that can be, like, more prickly for certain people and people won't feel as good after they read it. I feel like we're talking around something a little bit here, but, like, when you're talking about people won't feel as good, we're talking mostly about white people. I mean, I think readers in general, but I think I think particularly, like, readers who are not— Readers who are not of the same sort of cultural background as the author. And yeah, I think a lot of the time that is to a white audience. But at the same time, I think it does apply to anyone who's not from the background of the writer. So in other words, in the stinky lunchbox story, there are good guys and bad guys, and the good guys win, and it's all in the past anyway. In a story about gentrification happening today— You may have a reader who recently moved into an area that's getting more expensive, where some residents are being forced out. That reader is then implicated in the story. It's not so warm and fuzzy for them at that point. And that reader might also be the editor who decides whether or not this piece gets published. I asked Bettina if that's what she meant when she was talking about the difference between a gentrification story and the stinky lunchbox story. Yeah, exactly. This one is saying, like, someone in the past was racist, and, <laughs> and now everyone is just happy and comfortable in their identity. Right. Um, which I think is, why, is partially why it's so popular. Right. I think this proves to me that, like, we need stories about these sort of ideas, like the complexity of cultural identity, that are a little bit different and aren't so, you know, aren't so easy to just sort of, like, pin down by a computer. When people who work on artificial intelligence are asked about how chat GPT is going to affect people's jobs, they often say, it's not about replacing people. This is a tool that people can use to create bigger and better new things. Of course, anytime you're creating anything new, you're building on ideas that came before. So you do need to know what else is out there. Maybe chat GPT can be a tool in that sense. It can distill huge amounts of information on a subject, which will give you that base of knowledge and allow you to create on top of it faster and more effectively. But Bettina sees chat GPT as a different kind of tool. Because it's good at recognizing patterns in food stories and culture, 
She sees it as a way to figure out what not to do. I think for me, it does feel like a helpful metric of just being like, okay, this is the really common and predictable way to tell this story. I can look at that, what it's generated about this stinky lunchbox moment, and I can think, okay, well, like, what can I do to make sure that my story is more specific? Or what can I do to make my story have a different takeaway or just sort of run people through these same concepts in a way that is different and feels more interesting or feels more unique to me than just this, like, regurgitated common narrative? The idea that it's a tool... To me, it's like in any creative pursuit, let's talk food writing, recipe development, running a restaurant. There's always going to be people who are coming up with new ideas and pushing things forward. And there are going to be some people who are kind of following the trends, but they could still like be good at your job and make a living and have a life. So you introduce a tool like this I think that for the people who are able to stay on the cutting edge, yes, maybe they'll be able to use it as a tool. But I think a lot of those other folks are going to struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of comes down to what your goals are as a creative person, right? And I think that ChatGPT fits into the idea of just sort of producing for the sake of producing or like producing just to sort of do the bare minimum. Like it helps that act of like making something. But I think a lot of chefs and creative people and writers, you know, like myself, for example, are like not motivated by just making something. Like you want to do something that is creative or if you want to do something that is like boundary pushing or interesting, you aren't going to be happy with just that like rote production, right? You want something that is like, that is more thoughtful and complex. I don't think it'll take away the sort of artistry of cooking or the artistry of writing because I think there will always be people who will be motivated by that like inherent pursuit of doing something something clever. I agree. Like creative people are motivated by not just by like shoveling coal into the fire to keep the train running. It's about that pursuit of a new idea of something like any creative person knows that feeling. Like when when you hit on something in your head, you're excited or there's there's a topic that you're find especially compelling. It's exciting. I've been doing it for 25 years. It's still exciting when you hit on something like that. If you have this like incredibly powerful tool that is going to distill for you what has been done before with a depth and breadth that you didn't have before, will that allow whatever you create that's new to be better because you have this this foundation, you're working off of this foundation that's so much bigger and more powerful? Or will it dumb everything down? I think it will dumb a lot of things down, but I do think that, like, especially speaking on a personal level, I do feel slightly motivated by the idea that I need to, like, outdo or outrun what it can do. So I think there will always be people like me who feel like they must do better and they must do, you know, more creative and interesting work than this thing that's coming for our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bettina, I think you're one of the best food writers out there. So if ChatGPT takes you out, we're all screwed. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Knock on wood. (laughs) That's Bettina Makalintal, senior reporter at Eater. If you want to read her story about how she produced a diaspora food essay using ChatGPT, we'll link to it in our show notes. Next week, we look at a particular food that's shown up again and again in black music, from the Harlem Renaissance to Beyonce. That food jelly. Why is jelly such a big part of musical history? And how did the internet bring jelly to a new generation of listeners? Listen next week to find out. In the meantime, check out last week's show featuring cookbook author and food writer Andrea Nguyen. 
This episode is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Editing by Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. Special thanks this week to Sam Anzarut. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm an AI-generated voice, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.